Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm your host, Pastor Brad Gray. I serve as the lead pastor of Stonington Baptist Church right here in Paxinus, Pennsylvania. Uh, it's been a little while since I was able to um, speak to you uh, through another podcast, and uh, there's just been a lot going on, and uh, some things had to be delayed, and some things had to be sort of put on back burners. Uh, but I'm glad to be able to uh, come to you today and share uh, several things that uh, go along with uh, the current season that we're in. Um, I didn't want Easter to leave us without addressing some of these uh, great articles, reflections, and just amazing Easter truth. Um, you know, uh, it, it's always a delight when we can reflect on the meaning of this season. Um, you know, the reason for the season is not just something that we talk about come Christmas time. It's something that is around these times too. It's it's the, the whole amazing resonance of Holy Week and what that looks like. And uh, it, it reminds us of the amazing lengths to which Jesus descended in order to uh, secure our salvation. Uh, what a great, what a great thing to reflect upon. Um, that's really what Easter is all about. And so today, I want to uh, reflect on some of that. Uh, talk to you about um, uh, the gospel of subversion and uh, why that's an amazing little piece of news, and also how we can determine uh, the accurate timing of Holy Week. You know, every single time uh, that Easter rolls around, I think more questions arise about, you know, how do we make sense of uh, of Good Friday and Holy Saturday and Easter Sunday and so on and so forth with all some of the, uh, how do we make sense of Scripture and, and church tradition and whatnot. So uh, we're going to talk about that, and hopefully uh, you'll be encouraged by all of these little reflections. So uh, that's all I want to do, reflect on the gospel, reflect on the great God that we have who condescends to our sin in order to uh, save us, in order to reconcile us. So uh, that's what we're going to do today, and uh, we're going to do that uh, right after these messages. Do you like coffee? I know that you do, and that's why I want to tell you about Fresh Roasted Coffee. Fresh Roasted is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in central Pennsylvania that is committed to providing the highest quality coffee on earth. They do so by sourcing only the freshest coffee beans and by using the most eco-friendly roasting technology in the world. Fresh Roasted's USDA certified organic coffee beans ensure that your coffee is consistently regulated at each stage of the production process and completely free of GMOs and harmful synthetic substances. Fresh Roasted Coffee roasts their beans per order with immediate packaging and shipping directly to your door, meaning that you get to experience fresh coffee at its peak drinkability. That's what I like. I was introduced to Fresh Roasted Coffee soon after moving to central Pennsylvania, and I'm so happy I was because I think it's literally the best coffee out there. Their Blackbeard's Revenge blend is out of this world good. Whether you use a regular drip coffee maker or a pour-over or a French press, however you get your coffee fix, make it fresh roasted. Go to the link in the notes for this show and use the offer code GRACE10 at checkout. That's offer code GRACE10 at checkout to get a discount on your next order. So, what about this? Uh, as I said in the intro, I didn't want to leave Easter without talking at least a little bit 
briefly about um, the question that almost always comes up at this time of year. I, I, I'm sure that if you've been in church or around church, maybe you've asked this question before, or you've been around um, people who've asked this question before. But um, basically, the question goes, how do we make sense of how many days Jesus was actually in the grave? And this question arises because the church celebrates Easter on a Sunday, but we also recognize his crucifixion on what we know as Good Friday. Um, but we also understand that Jesus was in the grave for, as he tells us in Matthew chapter 12, three days and three nights. How do we make sense of this timing? And I've heard of, you know, various traditions uh, sort of have all kinds of timelines for um, Jesus being crucified on a Wednesday, um, and I think, uh, or or even on a Thursday. And uh, there's all kinds of reasons for this. We want to um, be true sometimes to uh, perhaps a very literal hermeneutic, uh, a very literal understanding of when Jesus um, died and when he said that he was going to be in the grave and so on and so forth. Um, Really what I think will help is, in, in order to answer this question, is if we don't understand Jesus literally, or even some of the other times when the whole three days thing comes up literally, but actually as somewhat of an idiom. Um, an an idiom that speaks to something that is going to happen on the third day. Um, let me uh, let me take let, let me let Chad Bird, uh, scholar for um, fifteen seventeen, explain this because he has a really really helpful piece that he reshared recently. I think he wrote it back in twenty twenty, uh, but this piece is actually so. I just think really insightful for understanding the timing of Holy Week, but also understanding why this question actually has a pretty simple solution. So he writes this, quote, In Hebrew, the expression third day does not necessarily mean a literal third day. For instance, in Hosea 6.2, the prophet says, After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. The prophet is talking about a future event in which God will bring Israel home to himself, not something he will do after 48 hours has elapsed. Moreover, we see from the book of Esther that after three days can mean on the third day. As preparation for her appearance before the king, Esther asked her fellow Jews not to eat or drink for three days, night or day, as it says in Esther 4.16. On the surface, this would suggest that after this three-day period on the fourth day, Esther would go to the king. But no, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and entered the king's presence, as it tells us in chapter 5, verse 1. Thus, after three days is Hebrew idiom for on the third day. This is similar to English, such as when we say, I've been working on this project day and night. Of course, we don't mean we've been working literal 24-hour periods. Rather, we've been putting in long hours each day. In Hebrew, therefore, three days and three nights need not consist of three full 24-hour periods. Three partial days will suffice. All of this is vital background, Chad continues, for us to understand what Jesus says in Matthew 12:40. Quote, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. If we were to understand this literally, as English speakers, then Jesus wouldn't, would not have been raised on the third day, but the fourth day after the supposedly 72-hour time period had passed. But 
as we saw with Esther, after three days simply means on the third day, which, again, is so insightful and I think so helpful for understanding how all of this plays out. Um, especially when all these a question, when these questions uh, as to Jesus' death and resurrection circulate during this time of year, um, crucified on Friday, buried on Saturday, risen on Sunday. Um, that's on the third day. That's, again, why we celebrate the, um, not just why we celebrate the resurrection on the third day, but even more so why we celebrate uh, the gathering of God's church on Sundays. It's this, um, it's all sort of related to this idiom of the third day. And in fact, Dr. Andreas Kostenberger makes the same argument, in fact, in a piece that he wrote just this year. He writes, quote, in Semitic idiom, any portion of a 24-hour period of time could be called a day and a night. That is, a day to night equals one day. With Jewish days beginning and ending at dusk, that gives us about three hours on Friday, 24 hours on Saturday, and up to almost 12 hours on Sunday, three days, or in Semitic idiom, three days and three nights. I like how uh, Dr. Kostenberger sort of lays that out so clearly and definitively, but it's the same sort of argument. It's an, it's an idiom that points us to the work that Jesus was going to bring about. You see, Holy Week is sort of reminiscent of the days of creation. Um, Chad actually has a great piece on this as well, just in the Chad Bird, that is, um, sort of articulating the fact that just as Jesus, as God in the beginning sort of made the world, created everything new in seven days, so too in seven days does God in Christ bring about our, our reconciliation. Um, Again, I think these are just really helpful things to think about. There's a lot of theology in what I just described, and you can reflect on that more. But I think from the, the sort of practical, pragmatic sort of aspect, it's helpful to think about the timing of all this as it relates to Jewish custom, as it relates to uh, Jewish history and tradition, but also the traditions that we have as well in the church. Um, and it makes sense when we celebrate Holy Week, we can understand it, understand what Jesus was doing all those days as he, leading up to his horrible but yet triumphant resurrection, uh, crucifixion and resurrection. Um, hopefully that's helpful. Bookmark these articles. I think you'll be helped in, 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 in reading them uh, whenever these sorts of questions arise on as to when Jesus actually rose and all those sorts of things. So, um, Hopefully you'll find those helpful and, and, and insightful. Um, what am I preaching on? So two weeks ago, of course, I I preached on uh, the on the good news of Easter. Uh, I preached out of Matthew twenty eight, and I was delighted to bring that message and just the all of the repercussions that are there uh, um, in that story of the resurrection. And, and reflecting on just the amazing resonance that Easter uh, provides for not only those who were there, but for we as well, centuries later. Um, again, uh, Easter is something that is so resonant. It is vital, crucial to our faith. That's not anything new. I'm not breaking new ground when I say that, of course. But it's something that I think we ought to pause for a moment. If we can rush through um, the crucifixion to get to 
the resurrection to get to the ascension. But really, I think we should pause and take stock of just what each step of that process looked like, especially what it looked like for Jesus's followers. We should stay for a moment in the devastation of that silent Saturday when Jesus was buried, when it seemed as though everything was defeated, that all hope was lost. I think we should stay right there and and let that sort of fester. Because I think that's when we realize that within that defeat, that's where this amazing good news of Jesus' resurrection comes. It, It breaks the silence. Out of the grave, Jesus walks, and he reverses all of that devastation into the good news of his victory over sin and death. And I think what you see there is that there's this amazing, amazing gospel of reversal. It's, it's what J.R.R. Tolkien talks about, this catastrophe of grace, this sudden turn, not from, not from good to bad, but from bad to good. That's really what the resurrection is. It's this sudden twist of fate where what we had thought was going on, actually, there was something deeper going on. And Jesus shows back up, shows his wounds to his beloved disciples, and then tells them to change the world with the message that he has risen from the grave. And you can see that that message taking effect, the, the repercussion of the resurrection is just the very fact that the church has existed for all these centuries and that we are still existing. The um, most amazing effect that the gospel has had on this world is the articulation of that news, of that announcement. Jesus is not there in the grave. He is risen. He's alive. And we can preach that message with all the conviction that the apostles had as well and know for certain that that message is true. What's been helpful? Um, I wanted to share a couple more passages just related to to Easter um, and related to, you know, that kind of time of year and everything. And uh, there's always a lot of good reflections um, around this time. And um, there's a couple that I wanted to highlight. So to do that, uh, we'll just go through them sort of in order. Um, uh, A friend that I met at Mockingbird last year um, at the Mockingbird Conference in New York, David Clay, has this really good article called Something to This Story. And he's pondering, you know, the resurrection and and all the evidences for it. But I love this little section where he writes this, quote, It becomes abundantly clear that atoning for sin ourselves is entirely outside of our power. God must do it. And thus the cross is the only thing out there that takes sin seriously enough. The resurrection is the only way out. Dying with Jesus and rising again with him to new life is the only thing powerful enough to free us from the endless cycle of narcissism, fear, tribalism, and self-seeking. Offering solutions within the cycle just doesn't work. Only something as great as the death and resurrection of Jesus can interrupt history and offer a real shot at freedom. End quote. I love how David articulates this, that any other solution that is proposed to to fix the problem of sin, to fix the devastation in the world, any other solution that's not 
the death and resurrection of Christ is insufficient. It actually doesn't take sin as seriously as the gospel takes it. It's not just just some piece of bad news. It's the worst piece of bad news because you're not just defective, you're dead. You're not just deficient. You're not just not measuring up. You are caught in trespasses and sins. That's what the gospel presupposes and offers as the solution to that. The God who, yes, comes down in Christ, takes on flesh and dies He enters our place of death so that he might raise us up to new life again. You see, other people might propose some other answer to the ills of this world, to all of the heartache that we see and the travesties that we notice, and indeed there are many. But only the message of Easter takes that problem of sin seriously enough. And that's why we can, again, preach the message of Easter with conviction, because it's the only thing that will truly set men free. Nothing else can do it. Nothing else can deliver on any of its promises other than the message that Jesus has been raised from the dead for our deliverance. Which leads me to another piece that I wanted to highlight. This one comes from Michael Bird, um, and it's called Raise for Our Justification. And in this article, he's reflecting on the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 4, where Paul writes, quote, It will be counted to us who believe in him who was raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This passage very much heightens the significance of Easter and all of our celebrations for it. And Michael puts it this way, quote, The cross without the resurrection is merely martyrdom, while the resurrection without the cross is just a supernatural freak show. But together they constitute the fulcrum of the divine saving action to rescue, redeem, justify, and transform a whole new humanity. A humanity that has passed through death into life, from condemnation to justification, and begun experiencing the power of the new creation. You see, just as the gospel that is preached at Easter takes sin seriously, it also takes the whole, the whole message that God has come to reveal. It takes it in its fullest extent. We don't need to drive a wedge between the cross and the tomb in order to, you know, somehow determine which one's more important than the other. (laughs) That's a foolhardy endeavor. You see, the fact is, you can't have one without the other. The cross and the empty tomb go hand in hand in order to bring bring about your reconciliation from sin and death. They bring about the good news that we relish. And I think what what makes Easter so surprising is just the fact of what we just articulated. We articulated the fact that Jesus was raised for our trespasses, raised or delivered up for our trespasses, excuse me, and then raised for our justification, which is just to say the good news of Easter is preceded by this incredible piece of storytelling in which the hero of the story dies. This 
brings me to an article by Sam Bush, who, writing for Mockingbird, penned this really wonderful reflection on Good Friday, entitled, The Hero Dies in This One. And Sam is talking about the subversion of the gospel, this idea that all of our expectations of how this story should end, of how uh, stories often end, are totally reversed (laughs) with the story of the gospel. And he's sort of making the point that any story worth its salt, uh, any story that has a lot of lasting resonance or value is often a story that's able to pull off a very successful surprise. If everything goes according to how you expect and there's nothing sort of surprising, it's not likely that you're going to be moved by that story. That's Sam also according to Malcolm Gladwell, the you know famous writer and essayist. So here's Sam in that piece, and he's alluding to Gladwell's premise. Quote, in his podcast, Revisionist History, Malcolm Gladwell once talked about his fixation with endings. Gladwell will read a thriller and stop five pages before the end because he con- he's concerned that the author won't be able to pull it off. After carefully studying the meaning of endings, he came to a conclusion on what makes a story successful. For a story to be any good, Gladwell's opinion, one thing is required. The ending must betray the expectations of its listeners. Just as the name Benedict Arnold is synonymous with the word traitor, the name Judas runs parallel to the word betrayer. And yet, Judas's depiction and deception may not be the only act of betrayal in the Gospels. Recalling Gladwell's key ingredient for a good story, there is another culprit on Good Friday. On the cross, God himself betrays our expectations of how the story should end. The gospel story ends not with the joyful procession of a victorious king, but complete and utter shock. His crown was not made of gold, but of thorns. He did not sit on a gilded throne, adorned with royal purple, but hung naked on a cross. Everyone is dumbfounded as the final scene fades to black and we are forced to face an ending that none of us would have chosen. Then he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. As Jesus breathes his last, even we, the reader, have been betrayed all over again. We may know the story by heart, but somehow it's impossible to believe. How could the Savior of the world fail even to save himself? But in fact, the whole point of this and the whole point that Sam makes through this article is it's because of that blessed subversion that we are then again subverted because the Savior, the Lord, the Messiah who dies is in fact the God who raised, is raised from the dead. Is there anything more subversive or surprising than the fact that the person dying on the cross was actually winning? He wasn't actually being defeated that day. He wasn't actually uh, being trounced by Satan and his minions. No, in fact, he was leaving Satan in the dust. <laughs> you see, that's what the gospel is. That's what the resurrection is. The resurrection is God's seal of approval on this blessed good news announcement that Jesus has come to subvert all of our expectations 
He's come to thwart them all in the fact that he's the God come in the flesh, come to take on death for you and for me. And in this sudden, again, again, it's Tolkien, in this sudden twist of fate, the eucatastrophe of grace, it resounds with the wonderful message that when all looked like despair and defeat, God was affecting your deliverance and mine. And now the resonance of the gospel resounds with all of the passion and conviction and gusto that it ever did. Because Jesus is, is not in the grave. He's alive. He won the day. Even though it looked like defeat, it looked like nothing but violence and hatred and vitriol. It looked that like Satan had won. But in fact... He was just being lured into the trap wherein this one who thought he ruled death was defeated by death itself, by God himself dying. He defeated the one who ruled over death. And therefore death is put to death. And you and I who were, yes, mastered by the evil one have been raised to life according to this blessed gospel. Yes, death is defeated. Sin is left behind to the grave, and righteousness is given to us freely because of Christ. Ours, indeed, is an Easter world. We could rejoice and be glad in this day, because that's the truth of it. Jesus is alive, my friends. Take heart. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast. Uh, If you aren't subscribed, you can do so on Spotify, Apple, or uh, right here on Substack. Thanks so much for your encouragement, for your prayers and your support. Uh, Thank you as always, and I'll see you on the next episode. Blessings to you.